listening to Radio Ed, a University of Denver podcast. We're your hosts, Matt Meyer and Emma Atkinson. Okay, so I'm at openai.com in their beta. Write a podcast intro about the use of artificial intelligence to create art and other content. Here's what it says. Welcome to the AI Creatives Podcast, where we explore the fascinating world of artificial intelligence and its potential to create art and other content. From AI-generated music to AI-generated paintings, we'll be discussing the implications of this technology and how it's changing the way we create and consume art. We'll also be talking to experts in the field to get their insights on the current state of AI-generated art and what the future holds. So join us as we explore the creative possibilities. That's not actually quite what this episode is going to be about, but we will be exploring this new world of AI content creation, how it works, where it's being used, and if it's even legal. Oh, and thanks to OpenAI for helping me write that intro. It seems like everyone's talking about AI right now, particularly generative AI, which is AI that quote-unquote learns by identifying patterns and generating new content based on those patterns. It's a little more complicated than that, but we'll circle back to some computer science fundamentals later. You probably saw at least some of your friends posting AI-generated portraits of themselves to social media in the last few months, with their appearances digitally altered in some pleasing or grotesque way. That was likely through Lenza, an app where users can pay to have an AI model create portraits of themselves with different themes. Lenza, ChatGPT, and Dolly are all examples of generative AI entities. Dolly and Lenza both produce images, while ChatGPT generates text. ChatGPT is owned by OpenAI, the company that I use to help me write, I say that very loosely here, the introduction to this podcast. And there are other AI models that can write code. But because all these AI models make use of existing content, art, essays, papers, etc., to generate quote-unquote new content, it begs the question, who owns AI-generated content? Before we get into that, I wanted to take a look at the history of AI, so I asked University of Denver computer science professor Kirsten Herring to help me out. Starting from the beginning, right, so when we're talking about AI or artificial intelligence, it has been around for a lot longer than people think. So the first idea that came up is like, well, something that is basically not human or not animal or not pet intelligence, right? In that sense, it is artificial that machines are doing that. And then fast forward a little bit um, through the science fiction's idea of like artificial humans or these kind of like robots and what they what they might look like or do. Um, it was around the 1950s that Alan Turing came up with the idea that uh, machines might be able to do something um, that is very similar to what humans can do. Alan Turing didn't get very far, Herring says, because of the limited ability of machines to save code. And until we were able to develop the technology that led to more robust computational power, AI was kind of at a standstill. Until it wasn't. In the 1990s and 2000s, scientists achieved many AI milestones, including the defeat of chess grandmaster Garry Kasparov by IBM's Deep Blue in 1997. Now, AI technology is used in ostensibly every industry. Self-driving cars are AI. Amazon's Alexa is AI. Customer service chatbots, facial recognition, autocorrect. AI, AI, AI. It's in the news because it finally... It finally works in a way that like, you know, we 
take interest and maybe pleasure or enjoyment or wonder from it like that it actually can do that. Perhaps one of the reasons why we've become so entranced with generative AI in particular is that it seems to be making something out of nothing, creating new content seemingly out of thin air. Well, that's not actually how it works. We, we enter some text prompts or an image, right? It thinks a little bit, right? It does something, right? It, it seems it's creating something new out of nothing, right? And that is very much how it works for us. That's why we are so fascinated by it. Um, on what, what is happening right behind this curtain. That is, <laughs> and that is why, why it's so hard to explain these things because it gets a little bit more complicated. So very basically what um, all of these things have in common is that they're based on something what we call machine learning. So very basically sophisticated statistical models that we apply to huge data sets, right? And from these data sets, Machine learning can learn things like patterns. It can combine new things. It can look at, well, what is this combination of pixels or this combination of image and words and all of these things, right? So it can basically extract information and it can do this with so many pictures. And it basically creates like these groups and categories, right? So it's just out there and looking at all of these things at the same time and like detects, well, if there's a pattern in the data, it very basically picks up on that. So that is the big thing that is happening behind the curtain. And then the different technologies that we see around, they use slightly different kinds of these, of these machine learnings. Those data sets from which the AI models pull are made up of billions of pieces of content, all of which have been neatly collected by web crawlers. So let me give you a hypothetical. I'm an artist and I have a website. And mm -hmm. on this website, I post digital digital images of, of my art, right? Is there a chance that because my images are out there on the internet that they will get picked up by one of these web crawlers and then used in AI art? Yes, there's a, there's a good chance, right? Um, there are some there are some legal restrictions on what on what one should web crawl and not, right? But if they are in the end um, obeyed, it's very hard to say, right? Because we're talking again, right? It's a data set of five billion images, right? And then either looking at them or searching in there is really hard. Is it okay for people to use AI models to create art? Is it ethical? Is it legal? What if the data set the AI is pulling from includes original art made by other people, which is likely? Who then owns the AI-generated art? Can artists and creators stop their work from being part of the billions of pieces of content that AI models pull from? It can be a little strange to see a computer doing what previously used to be done only by humans. Our production assistant, Deborah Hosha, experienced it firsthand. She's a DU student and a successful screenwriter and director. Okay, okay so cool. you were telling me about how your friends took your script and put the idea in chat GPT or, or one of these AIs and, and it came out with something very similar to your own work, right? Yeah, so what happened was they were looking at their own script and they try to like, they put like kind of like the log line for their story in the chat GPT uh, chat thing for the AI to like kind of make um, some kind of like redo of the script. So like, I think they wrote like, write a script about this and they wrote like the log line for their film and they were like okay this is cool and then they decided to do um kind of like the same thing for my film uh, um so they came up like they didn't I don't think they knew my log line so they kind of wrote like a 
like a small, a few couple of sentences, I think, just about like the idea that I had. Um, and they were like, write a script about this. And the AI came up with like a like, very short script. I feel like maybe one or two pages. Like it wasn't as long as the script that I was working on on the capstones last year. Um, but it was like incredibly like similar to what I wrote. That must have felt so weird. If you could sum it up the way that you felt seeing that in one word, what would it be? That is a very good question. Um, I think outsmarted. Like Yeah, I, that's a good one. I read it and I was like, maybe I am AI. You know what I mean? Like maybe we think the same. Like this computer has very similar brain process to how my brain processes it because my story had a narrator, they had a narrator. Like we are thinking the same way for this story, very similar like way to start the story, similar like ideas of how a story like that would exist. So like, does AI know of my story? You know, is there a way that my script is online and I don't know about it? And, or maybe my film is online and maybe AI already know, knows of what I've done. And maybe that's where it came from. Or is it like that I think the same? Or maybe it's that you both, you and the AI are both pulling from existing scripts, right? So like all yeah. of the movies that you've watched and all of the experiences that you've had with film, the AI is pulling from similar, I don't want to say experiences, but similar content that you yeah. have also seen, right? It, which is weird because it, it's like AI is not a person, but they're pulling, you know, from the same, you know, quote unquote memories that you yeah. also have of film and content. Yeah, it's it's like what my mom tends to say to me, like about like ideas and like stories and creativity. Like she says that like nothing is created. Everything is like copied and changed. Like this idea of like all the ideas already exist and the new ideas come from other ideas that just become new because you base it off of what you already know and just come up with something that works from that. AI content creation, ethically dubious, right? At least as it exists currently. But is it even legal? University of Denver law professor Viva Moffat says that's a complicated question with an even more complicated answer. You know, we don't actually know exactly what it's doing. But what we do know is that the AIs are essentially scraping data off of the Internet, at least publicly available data um, from the Internet. Um, and so there are there's no, as I said, one answer to is it legal or not legal because that the, the range of possible stuff that's out there is things that are protected by copyright, um, things that are in the public domain. Uh, so that's, that is not protected by copyright or any other kind of law. Um, but there could be, I don't know the extent to which it can get at sort of non-publicly mm, accessible sites. I just don't know the answer to that. So um, you know, it's certainly possible that it's, it, you know, it's grabbing from things that somebody thinks are at least confidential or private or proprietary. Um, I don't know the answer to that question. Um, it also, um, well, so we don't exactly know everything that it's picking up. Um, um, and so that's that's one thing we don't know whether, you know, is that is that okay? So your question is, is that okay for it to do that? Well, uh, you know, it's sort of, to some extent, this is a real law professor answer, but it depends. Um, and so, for example, there are lots of times when it is okay 
to either, you know, under copyright law or sort of other doctrines to take existing works and use them to create something new. And you might have to think about both whether the copying or using of the work itself is copyright infringement or otherwise wrongful. And then whether the thing that you create is infringing or not is also a question that in copyright law is often uh, resolved under the fair use doctrine, which is a very fact sensitive kind of uh, determination. So the law is a little fuzzy when it comes to this stuff, right? But do artists have any recourse, any legal right to say, stop using my art? In a lot of ways, uh, no, that's not a thing that artists can do. Artists might feel that. They might say, I don't want, I don't want my work being used in this way. Um, there are ways in which copyright might vindicate that concern. So there are ways in which they could say, oh, yeah, if you are using it in a way that is infringing and is not fair use, then maybe I could bring a copyright. Uh, you know, that 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 might be a, a, a successful copyright um, lawsuit. They can't if it, it, I guess the way to say this is they can't, if something would otherwise be fair use, an artist can't prevent that. Sort of the, the, the point of fair use is that it allows users like me, if I want to go create a new mashup work of something, you know, that if I am doing, if, if what I'm doing is fair use, I don't have to ask for permission. Um, so, you know, the law doesn't want to stop all kinds of copying and reuse, just certain forms of it. So I don't, you know, that doesn't mean that some of these creators might not ultimately have some claim or cause of action that they could bring against the AIs. Um, uh, but having a copyright doesn't mean you get to control every use of your work. Um, what I meant was sort of like, I, I think uh, it, that some of the concerns that artists have are perfectly understandable. Um, and, and and partly, I think it's not like we can know, oh, this is what's going to happen or what will be okay and what won't be okay, because there's so much sort of unknown about how this is going to proceed. There is one example, though, of someone trying to take on the legality of generative AI. A Los Angeles programmer named Matthew Butterick is suing Microsoft, claiming that the company is essentially committing piracy with its AI model Copilot, which generates code using open source software data. The New York Times reports that the lawsuit is believed to be the first brought in the name of protecting original content and data from generative AI models. Butterick said to the Times, quote, The ambitions of Microsoft and OpenAI go way beyond GitHub and Copilot. They want to train on any data anywhere for free, without consent, forever. So this lawsuit says, no, no, you can't do that. That violates the terms of our licenses, uh, that you can't take this code, use it, and then charge for the product. You can use it and give it away, but you can't use it and charge for it. So I think that's an, a, an example of one way in which some group of creators of something here, code, not visual art, um, might try to challenge uh, at least aspects of what's happening. I, I wonder if you could, you know, would you, what advice would you give to someone looking to create something using AI? Is there any, is there anything, any warning that you would ask them to heed in terms of, of the legality of using some of these, of these technologies? I mean, it's, you know, I, I don't want to be a person who's saying, you know, oh, this is, we have to just stop and, you know, I'm not a technophobe. And in fact, the history of copyright law is a history of 
you know, incumbent established industries freaking out about new technology. I mean, that's why we have copyright law in the first place is that the printing press came around and the, you know, the, the monks and the other people who were sort of, you know, had a monopoly on knowledge and knowledge dissemination freaked out. Um, and, you know, that's just happened over and over again. The player, piano, radio, TV, copy machines, the internet, uh, you know, BitTorrent. I mean, it's, AI may be quantitative and a qualitative change, but it may just be a quantitative change. It may just be, oh, this is, we've dealt with this before and we're going to deal with it in the future. And this is a bad thing for a law professor to say, but the law is not very good at, at getting ahead of this. The law, the law is behind technological change and business model change and is, is more reactive than proactive. Beyond art and computer science, generative AI is also making waves in the field of education, with teachers and professors being urged to be on the lookout for students using ChatGPT or other models to complete their schoolwork. In your personal experience, have you encountered any students using AI in your courses? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I don't think so. Um, but I, I mean, I think I say that because like it's very, it's, I, I'm not gonna say it's impossible that on my exam, I give open book, open notes exams. I tell students that they can use, uh, you know, any materials that they want. I tell them that they cannot use, they cannot give or receive assistance. And so I did clarify with them. I think that included AI, even without me saying it, but this year I did this semester, I did say, you know, you can't give or receive assistance. And that includes the assistance of any non-human AI or other technology. Wow. So you felt that it was necessary to, to kind of add that as a little, as a little afterthought. I think in the interests of clarity, and I think that, uh, I think we have to assume that our students will uh, know about and use and be better at using AI than I will be. <laughs> I, I mean, my personal view has always been like, I, I don't want to, I don't want to make it, I don't want to put students in a position where they feel like, oh, it would really help me to get assistance in some way. Obviously, ethically, using AI to create schoolwork and passing it off as your own is a no-no. But people aren't always going to follow the rules, especially when those rules don't necessarily have any clear legal consequences. Moffat has some words of advice for educators. I think that is the worst response we could have is to just pretend it's not happening or hope that it won't happen won't keep developing. So, I mean, that's why I talked a little bit about like, well, let's, you know, maybe I've, I've thought about, well, let's, maybe I'll talk to my students about how they might want to use AI and if there are ways in which it could be incorporated into teaching rather than us pretending that, you know, that, that it's not out there. Um, uh, and I think more broadly, that's what, you know, sort of policymakers need to be thinking about too, is how to harness it for some good and try to think about, you know, what, what might happen and where we might need to step in with regulation or some, some response. Uh, so, but I, I think it is a little bit unpredictable. Thanks again to our guests, University of Denver professors Kirsten Herring and Viva Moffat, and to our production assistant, Deborah Hosha. For more information on their work and the sources used in this episode, check out our show notes at du.edu slash radioed. Tamara Chapman is our managing editor. James Swearingen arranged our theme. I'm Emma Atkinson, and this is Radio Ed. Radio Ed.